Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. It is April 9th, or April 29th, 2021. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm doing fine. David, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. I was a little sick yesterday, but I'm feeling much better now. I was on vacation in the early part of the week. That might be why I got sick. Um, that's why we haven't done a podcast, and it's Thursday. We haven't done a podcast all week. I know. It's it's due. We are really due, and I'm ready to go. Nice. So I've chosen a topic for today, and you might have seen it in the thumbnail at the top of the hour. Uh, the topic is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of all time. The mystery of... D.B. Cooper. Have you ever heard this story? Uh, I haven't heard it till you told me. Actually, I may have heard it, uh, but it, I didn't know real the details. I knew the big picture. Yes. So he disappeared without a trace in the over the Washington or Portland or Oregon area. And we're going to read his Wikipedia. We're going to go through it. We're going to talk about D.B. Cooper today. We're going to do a little biographical sketch. Sound like fun? Yes, be, be very interesting, I think. Yes, so let's get started by pulling up, I suppose, his uh, Wikipedia and seeing, seeing what they have to say. Okay. D.B. Cooper is a media epithet. His actual name was Dan Cooper, used to describe an unidentified man who hijacked a Boeing 727 aircraft in the United States airspace between Portland and Seattle on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971. I believe, and they may get into this a little bit later, that in Washington, on November 24th, they celebrate D.B. Cooper Day. Wow. Interesting. So, so he's sort of seen as almost like a folk hero. Um even though his claim to fame was hijacking a plane and robbing them for money. Okay, so let's continue. After a stop at the Seattle-Tacoma airport to collect $200,000 in ransom, equivalent to $1.2 million in 2019, and four parachutes, he leapt to an uncertain fate over southwestern Washington. Despite an extensive manhunt and a 45-year-long FBI investigation, the perpetrator's identity and fate remain unknown. The crime remains the only unsolved air piracy in commercial aviation history. The man purchased his airline ticket using the alias Dan Cooper, but because of a news miscommunication, became known in popular lore as D.B. Cooper. <laughs> Very interesting. That's the opening paragraph. How do you feel about this? I Well, it's... It, it's uh... The only, I think the key here is the is the only unsolved uh, uh, mystery in uh, air commercial piracy. aviation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, air, air piracy in uh, commercial aviation history. I think that's fascinating. Yes. And uh, and so when someone he didn't hurt anybody, he just robbed people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the thing of it is, is that you respect his ingenuity and his ability to do that. I guess that's why they. Uh, they celebrate D.B. Cooper Day, and that's why uh, uh, he's known and yeah. he's, uh, he's honored. Because it's just, it's, it's very clever. He, he did something wrong. He didn't hurt anybody. But uh, you can't be doing that kind of stuff. If you do that too much, you start hurting people because uh, uh, it gets out of hand. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's kind of respected that he was able to do that. Yeah. And uh, I think people, they don't. 
they don't think he's a good guy. They think it's cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and that's the interesting thing about D.B. Cooper to me. People, they'll celebrate his birth. I mean, they ce- they'll celebrate the day of his hijacking in, in Washington and Oregon. Uh, in those, you know, s- small towns between Portland and Seattle. He sort of seemed kind of like a folk hero. He did something. He didn't hurt a soul. He absconded with, you know, a million bucks and disappeared forever without a trace. And there's something sort of captivating about that. Yeah, so it's kind of like you don't celebrate what he did because it was wrong. But you did celebrate how he did it. The ingenuity and the ability to put this together. It's just the creativity and the intelligence and the execution uh, that we need to learn from that. And we need to do the same thing and doing good. Mm hmm. Um, also, it's just, you know, people will respect you if you do something cool. <laughs> Not saying that hijacking a plane is cool, FBI, if you're listening. I'm saying art or music or business, if you come up with a good idea and you show ingenuity, you know, even if it fails, people will have respect for the fact that you tried to do something different. Dare to yeah. be different. Yeah, yeah. Dare to be different. Don't, don't do anything wrong, uh, but be... Be uh, uh, be creative and try try something new and give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you succeed, sometimes you don't. So continuing with the Wikipedia, available evidence and a preponderance of expert opinion suggests that Cooper probably did not survive his high-risk jump. The FBI maintained an active investigation for 45 years after the hijacking. Despite a case file that grew to over 60 volumes over that period, no definitive conclusions have been reached regarding Cooper's true identity or fate. Numerous theories of widely varying plausibility have been proposed over the years by investigators, reporters, and amateur enthusiasts. A young boy discovered a small cache of banknotes from the ransom along the banks of the Columbia River in 1980, which triggered renewed interest, but ultimately only deepened the mystery. The great majority of the ransom remains uncovered. The FBI officially suspended active investigation of the case in July 2016, but the agency continues to request that any physical evidence that might emerge related to the parachutes or the ransom money be submitted for analysis. Okay. So, the FBI, of course they would say he probably died, but they never found him. And they would say... He didn't survive. He didn't get away with this. Because if someone can get away with it, that means someone else can get away with it, right? Yes. And if he died, they would have found the body. Mm-hmm. And they would have found the parachutes, and they would have found the money. They would have found the parachutes, they found the money. So everything indicates that he didn't die. Yes. But the experts say that he did die. Now, are those experts just uh, experts in saving face? Yeah. Or are they experts <laughs> yeah. in, in skydiving? They might be experts in skydiving and say the speed and the altitude at which he jumped, he wouldn't have survived the jump. And they may be totally right. And he might have been ripped apart by bears. You know? <laughs> Who knows what could have happened. And the bears ate the parachute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought of. Oh, yeah, well, if if they say he he died, then if you're dead, you can't get up and walk away. Mm-hmm. If you're dead, you can't dispose of the parachute. If you're dead, you'll be found. Yeah, but it's also 
if you want to do this, you're not going to get away with it. And D.B. Cooper didn't get away with it either. He died. That's the official party line, right? So don't even yeah. think about doing this. Now, I think today with uh, cell phones, geotagging, locations, I think it would be impossible today. You know, 1971, he could do it. But 2021, 40, 50 years later, nah, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, though he, uh, uh, that it, when you know how my thinking on this is, when you know how things work, uh, you can you can always get around things. Mm-hmm. You can always get around it when you know how they work. I but I I feel like the the intricacy of the plot and the contingencies that would need to be made for someone to pull off something like this today. Also, we'll we'll talk about the. Uh, the hijacking. I think. I don't think he had a weapon. I think he said that he had a bomb. So should we read about the hijacking itself? Sure. On Thanksgiving Eve, November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one, a middle aged man carrying a black attache case approached a flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one way ticket on flight three hundred five, a thirty minute trip north to Seattle. Okay, there's something you couldn't do today. <laughs> no ID, pay in cash, get on a plane. I don't think I, that that doesn't fly. That doesn't pass the mustard, you know? So there's one reason why he was able to never be identified. Okay. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727, and took seat 18C, 18E by one account, 15D by another, <laughs> and ordered a drink, a bourbon and soda. Eyewitnesses described a man in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. Flight 305, approximately one-third full, departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 Pacific time. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant situated nearest to him in a jump seat, attached to the aft stair door. Schaffner, assuming the note contained a lovely business, lonely businessman's phone number, dropped it unopened into her purse. Cooper leaned towards her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> the note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt-tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it. But Schaffner recalled that it mentioned the bomb and directed her to sit in the seat beside Cooper. Schaffner did as requested, then quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders, four on top of four, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands. 200000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel t- truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The pilot, William A. Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities. The 35 other passengers were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor technical difficulty. Northwest Orient's president, Daniel Nyrop, authorized payments of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijacker's demand. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble. 
Cooper's parachutes and ransom money, and to mobilize emergency personnel. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he remarked, looks like Tacoma down there, as the airport flew above it, as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive at that time from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Schaffner described him as a calm, polite, well-spoken, not at all consistent with the stereotypes, enraged, hardened criminals, or take-me-to-Cuba political dissidents, popularly associated with air piracy at the time. He wasn't nervous, Mucklow told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to give Mucklow the change, and offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle-area banks, uh, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most from 1963A or 1969 series, and made a microfilm photograph of each of them. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel personnel, instead demanding civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. I think this is part of the legend. He was very nice to people. He tried to tip when he ordered his drinks. Um, he was thoughtful and calm all the time. So he's threatening to blow up their plane. And they're like, yeah, this guy was pretty cool. You know, the, the, the people involved. Like like uh, John Dillinger and and uh, Bell Star, they were very friendly. Mm -hmm. Jesse James, Jesse James, they're they're all very friendly when you get to know them. Uh, but they would do things like this, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it was very interesting too. Very interesting. So because there's like a he knew there's a threat of violence here, right? You know, he's going to blow oh, up the planet. Oh, Everybody's going to die. Yeah. So I'm going to be nice if you don't cross me. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it's kind of like uh, the Wild West, you know. Hey, if you don't cross me, we're going to be friends. If you cross me, look out. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is sort of, I think in people's minds, like you said, this is the last thing that ever happened in the Wild West, in a way. You know, this happened yeah. in Portland and Seattle, between Portland and Seattle, as far west as you can go without going to Alaska or Hawaii. And this guy... He was the gentleman crook, and he used the threat of violence, but he was a gentleman at heart, and he was very nice. He was never nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. Um, it's sort of like a, the last hurrah of the Wild West, someone hijacking Re a plane. And uh, requested meals with a flight crew during a stop in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting, yeah. So we'll continue on with the story of D.B. Cooper. The passengers... So this was, this oh. was November. November... Of 71. Of 1971. Uh, in Tacoma and Seattle. Mm -hmm. Taking off from Portland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was there. That, that's I was there and... June and July. So you might have... Oh, but you weren't there in November? No. I so left you, in November. You wouldn't have read it in the local papers. I'm sure it was all the buzz if you were there I in November. I was there just before. You know, I was in the, I was in the, uh, in the, in the woods, in the uh, bush there, too. 
It was pretty dense. It's a pretty dense bush. Imagine if you were there six months later and you're out on a mission and you see some guy in a suit with $200,000 in a briefcase. Parachuting down. Yeah. Okay, I got a question for you. Now, there's no way to know. So this that's another thing about this. There's so much mystery. Do you think the bomb was real? Uh... It could have been. It could not have been. Uh, I don't. Uh, to me, I'm sure people have said this, and the FBI will deny it. I don't think that's the question. I think the question is: Was it an inside job? How could someone get away with something like this, so blatant, if he didn't know how things worked, or if he if he wasn't an FBI agent himself, and mm-hmm. he knew he knew how they were gonna uh, he knew their their procedures. And he knew how to cover himself where they couldn't find him. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure someone has said this many, many times before. See, I thought, to get away from I thought the uh, eight cylinders, they look like sticks of dynamite and a big battery and a clock or whatever. It's like, uh, sounds like how you'd imagine a bomb in a movie. Was it even real? And of course, they never recovered the bomb. So there's no way to tell if it was real. That's, what, that's, yeah. the, that's the great thing about this. And he took the note back. So yeah. you don't have his note. You don't have anything on him. And I just find that it makes it more mysterious, you know? Well, to me, he did everything right. So that everything he did was not random. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took back the note. You know, you don't have any evidence. He paid by cash. Uh, and he showed it to them, but he took it. He took the bomb. And it looked like a bomb where you've seen it on TV, you know, the sticks of dynamite and red wires or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it looked like it. And so she so uh, the the lady, whoever, whatever her name was, she uh, she couldn't doubt it. You know, she had to do what she did. Yeah. So she was right in what she did. So you couldn't say, oh, that's not a bomb because you could have a bomb that doesn't look like a bomb, but it's a pretty, pretty bad, bad bomb. Mm hmm. So the thing of it is, is that he did everything right. And when you think about that, how did he know to do everything right if he wasn't part of knowing what was right? <laughs> yeah. You can't help but think that. That's, why that's, it's, that. that's what I think of. That's why it's one of the great mysteries of our time. Let's get back to the story. Passengers Pass- released. At 524, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met. And at 5.39, more than an hour after sunset, the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed Scott to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close all window shades in the cabin to deter police snipers. Northwest Orient Seattle operations manager Al Lee approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer, and delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklow via the aft stairs. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper ordered all passengers, Schaffner, and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew, a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft approximately 100 knots, at a maximum 10,000 foot, 3,000 meter altitude. 
He further specified that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. Co-pilot William Ratajak informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling stop would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed upon Reno, Nevada as the refueling stop. Cooper further directed that the aircraft take off with the rear exit door open and its staircase extended. Northwest's home office objected on grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aft staircase deployed. Cooper countered that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He would lower it once they were airborne. An FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was denied. The refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel's tanker truck's pumping mechanism. A second truck was brought in to complete refueling. Well... He obviously has some knowledge of um, how airplanes work, right? Okay. He not only has knowledge of FBI investigations, he has knowledge of how uh, uh, flying an airplane, how to refuel an airplane, uh, the, the procedures. What person knows all that? It's very, very interesting. Um, also, what person knows all that. For those that are listening, we're going to show a picture of the Boeing 727 that he hired. Well, not the one, but a. Um, I'll put it up on screen here for you to see. And you see the aft staircase. Uh-huh. It comes down out of the tail of the plane, not off the side. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah. We used to, when I flew back then, we used to deboard the plane that way. Yeah. So if you're my age, not Mikey's age. You've never seen an aft staircase like that because I've never flown in a Boeing 727. I think of them coming off the side of the plane. This one comes straight out of the butt of the plane. Does that make sense? Yeah. The lower, um, the lower area. So I can't. It's difficult for me to describe. But so yes. But like you're saying, he knows what type of plane he's on. He knows that the plane would take off with the aft staircase deployed, but it doesn't matter. He'll just. Deploy it after they're in the air. And he, he, know, he, he knows how to deploy it. And he seems to know FAA. He's got aircraft knowledge, like serious aircraft knowledge, right? And so if he was planning on just bailing in Washington, Oregon, which he did, do you think that choosing Reno is just a bluff? It's going to only go 1,000 miles. Oh, let's just stop in Reno and refuel there. That didn't matter to him. Yeah. You can go anywhere you want. It, it, actually, that would be fine with him because then they would do it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to take off is yeah. what he wanted. Because he had the money. Where you go. He had the bag of money at that point. He had everything he wanted. He, what he needed was to take off. He'll deploy uh, the the rear staircase, and then he would jump out. That's what he mm-hmm. got ready to do. So, so all that stuff did matter. It didn't matter to him. But look at this. He knows FBI investigations. He knows pilots. He knows uh, the FAA regulations. Uh, he knows how the plane can take off safely. He knows how to deploy the mechanics within it. Even pilots don't know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He knows keep it at 10,000 feet, minimum airspeed, unpressurized cabin, landing gear down, aft staircase down. That's a lot of stuff to know, especially in 1971 when you don't have Google. 
because because he knew he was going to jump out. So, but, but in 1971, if you don't have Google, I think the way you know those things is you have experience. Yeah, yeah. Or you're not alone. You have other people helping you with this stuff. Mm-hmm. You have a bomb maker. You have a, a aeronautics expert, and he's the main. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's it's fishy. It's fishy. <laughs> it is. It's such a mystery. So let's let's get to the end of the hijacking. Yeah, it's not just him. There's more. There's more people involved, and it's just him, and it's not people you would think. <clears throat> Back in the air at approximately 7:40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with only Cooper, pilot Scott, flight attendant Mucklow, and co-pilot Ratajkowski. The flight engineer Harold E. Anderson and flight engineer Harold E. Anderson on board. Two F. 106 fighter aircraft from McCord Air Force Base followed the airliner, <clears throat> one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. A Lockheed T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission also shadowed the 727 before running low on fuel and turning back near the Oregon-California state line. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. As she complied, Mucklow observed Cooper trying tying something, possibly the money bag, around his waist. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft stair apparatus had been activated. Ratajkowski offered assistance via the aircraft's intercom system, which Cooper refused. This was the last communication the crew had with him. The crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. At approximately 10.15 p.m., Scott and Ratajkowski landed the 727 with the aft stair still deployed at Reno Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet, as it had not yet been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard. But an armed search quickly confirmed his absence. And just like that, he vanished. So what happened, what happened to those uh, uh, <clears throat> two F, F-106 fighters uh, around him? They didn't see him jump out? I guess not. Lockheed T-33 trainer. Well, if there are one above and one below, you might not have eyes on the aft door. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the other thing is that, uh, if I remember right, he they flew at low altitude at a maximum of 10,000 foot, 3,000 3, meter altitude. Mm-hmm. That's That's really low and slow. So it's hard to follow those things. It's hard to follow. So when you're flying slow, those jets can't, I don't think, I don't know, I don't think the jets can't, can't, I don't know that much about aircrafts, but I don't think the jets can fly that slow. Mm-hmm. And that and that low at that slow. Yeah. So, well, so he, knew, he knew what could, he knew about fighter jets. Mm-hmm. He knew about the, the, air, the aircraft. He knew fighter jets. He knew, it's very interesting. Yeah. Like you said, it all seems a little fishy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Sure does. And I think what's fascinating is, because they never solved it, there's no satisfying conclusion. And I think we won't get into this today, because I think we'll just talk about the mystery and sort of our thoughts. But if I go back to the Wikipedia, and we'll talk about their investigation, how they didn't find anything. Um, they recovered some ransom money. 
this boy along the gates recovered some ransom money in 1980, nine years later, on the banks of the Columbia River. But it wasn't all of it. Um, but if you look at suspects, throughout the years, there have been one, two, three, four, five, six, tons of people. And it's like, oh, this is the real D.B. Cooper. He's alive. And I think he might be dead, but people just... They want him to be alive. They want him to find D.B. Cooper because if you find him, you uh, can solve the mystery. But that's never happened, you know? Yeah. Do, do you think he's alive? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> do you think he survived? He'd be... Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Because uh, because a lot, a lot of people say, well, at that altitude, you know, 10,000 feet, that's not that high uh, with a parachute, uh, you know, you're going to die. And he says, well, wait a minute. Look, look what has happened up till now. He he knew exactly how to do it. He knew he had a knowledge of what he was doing. He wouldn't have knowledge of everything and then jump at, jump to his death. Yeah, it's true. So that that doesn't that doesn't really make sense. He wouldn't have taken care of all these details and not had a good detail of when to jump to ensure survival. And like he's like, oh, that looks like Tacoma. Oh, that looks like the Air Force Base. Oh, he could identify landmarks. So he may have had someone on the ground to scoop him up. And if he did, he would know when to jump, like roughly, you know. Yep. Um. It's as if it looked like it was planned meticulously, uh, but also it was well thought out. It wasn't random. It wasn't some crazy guy trying something and seeing how far he could get. Uh, everything was thought out. So I believe he jumped. I believe he landed. I believe that uh, it all worked out. Now, as far as the, the money, we'll see what they say about the money that was found. Uh, it could have blown out. It could have could have lost part of it. And, and uh, he wasn't going to worry about some of the money you're just going to try to mm -hmm. uh, uh, stay free because if he gets captured he's he'd be, he'd be in the jail the rest of his life mm -hmm. um so yeah let's talk about the investigation the fbi agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner the agents also found cooper's black clip-on tie his tie clip and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two shroud lines cut from the canopy. I wonder if he used the shroud lines to secure the money bag to his body. Um, authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno. A series of composite sketches was developed, were developed, would be the appropriate English, I believe. Um, local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. One of the first was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. Contacted by the Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet an imminent deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. A wire service reporter, Clyde Jappin of UPI by most accounts, Joe Frazier of the AP by others, republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources, and the name D.B. Cooper became lodged in the public's collective memory. That's how he's D.B. Cooper, because he said he was Dan. The B never came into effect, you know? Mm-hmm. 
It's like Mark Twain says, a lie can make its way around the world while a retraction is still putting on its shoes or something like that. Um, Look at that picture you have there, David. This one? Yeah, watch it. See, it's coming down. He's coming down and then he jumps out. Uh-huh. That's pretty much how it happened. Yeah. But you notice you can do that from the from the aft uh, staircase. You couldn't do it from the side. No. You'd get blown off, right? Into the jet or something? or You get blown off and or it'd be too windy. Mm-hmm. But this way, you're with the wind as you as you go out. Interesting. Okay. The pre- precise search area was difficult to define, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path, which varied by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing considerably. <clears throat> An important variable was the length of time he remained in freefall before pulling his ripcord if indeed he succeeded in opening a parachute at all. Neither of the Air Force fighter pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visibly or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne, black-clad human figure could easily have gone undetected. The T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727. And an experimental recreation with Scott piloting the aircraft used in the hijacking in the same flight configuration, FBI agents pushing a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section described by the flight crew crew at 8.13 p.m. It was concluded that 8.13 p.m. was the most likely jump time. At that moment, the aircraft was flying through a heavy rainstorm over Lewis River in southwestern Washington. Ah, he jumped oh, out. Oh, when they, when they were testing it or when he jumped out? I think when he jumped out, 8.13 p.m. on the night of the hijacking. Was a heavy rainstorm. So he, he, he skydove into a rainstorm. But maybe he thought, I'm in a cloud. The jets won't see me. The military jets. Into, wow, okay. It's right. And that makes, that makes more sense, too. Mm-hmm. Initial extrapolations placed Cooper's landing zone within an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southwest, southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively of the Lewis River in southwest Washington. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake, the reservoir immediately to its east. No trace of Cooper, nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him was found. The FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path, known as Victor-23 in standard aviation technology, but Vector-23 in most Cooper literature, from Seattle to Reno. Although numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. 
Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis. That's you. Yep, that's me, yeah. Uh, that's where you were in 71. Along with right. Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen and civilian volunteers conducted another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days in March, and then an additional 18 days in April. Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified as the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Ultimately, the search and recovery operation, arguably the most extensive and intensive in U.S. history, uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. Can you imagine if you were at Fort Lewis just a little bit later, you might have been in the search for D.B. Cooper, right? It says Army soldiers. That's I was an Army soldier in Fort Lewis, Washington, and, and I left in July. And this is March this is, of the next year. Yep. When the thaw happened, it's it's a yep. fascinating story, don't you think? Yeah, and, and uh, I think that uh, it was popularized by the media, and that's why it got wide. But I bet there's a lot of stories like this that happened that was not this grandiose or visible, uh, where people got away with it because mm -hmm. they they thought it out and then they knew how to do it. Well, also it's because it involves an airliner and a parachute jump. I'm sure there's bank robberies and um, other things of that nature that are just as well planned that succeeded. But just, I think the airplane aspect, the parachute aspect, the, the lone man on a plane, he may have had people on the ground helping him, but all of this stuff and his knowledge of the area, his knowledge of aviation, uh, the apparent authenticity of his bomb and the fact that no material evidence was ever recovered, all that stuff makes for a compelling mystery. Yeah, it's the it's the the romance and grandiose uh, brashness of Cooper that made made the story interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, look what he did, and so you respect the uh, the intelligence and the planning and the execution. Uh, but then, of course, it's still a crime. But still, mm -hmm. you can't help but but respect how he did it, and uh, and also he was polite. Yeah. He was nice to the people, and uh, and so I'm wondering. And whenever everybody left the plane, and he just had the pilot, co-pilot, and this kind of thing, why would they? Uh, anyway, I think there's some more negotiations that could have gone on that didn't sound like they did. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, we have mechanical. You have to stay a little bit longer. Da, 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 da. So if if there if it, you can't help but think that there was there was a lot of knowledge that he had, but uh, he had to know a lot. But then did he also have connections because he knew a lot? So you can't help but think that. I I think that. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I, it's he just had a bomb. He didn't have a gun. I guess you know he didn't want the snipers to hit him, but. You know, when they deliver the, the money, they have ink packs. Have you heard of these ink packs? Mm-hmm. So if you steal money from a bank, it looks like a, a bound $20 bill band. So $20 bill, there's 100 of them, is 2000 bucks or whatever. Um, 
and they, they banned them. Well, inside, the, the bills are cut, and there's a little pack. And once you leave the bank, you're in the parking lot, and it explodes with ink in your car. And, of course, this is 1971. Maybe they didn't have this technology. But what if they did that with knockout gas? You know? And they give him the bag. He looks through it. He sees all the sequential $20 bills. And the next thing you know, pff, knockout gas. They go in and they take them. You know? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just sort of spitballing here. Maybe they don't do that type of stuff. Too risky. But do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. There's a lot of things you could have done. Mm-hmm. A lot of things like that you could have done. Uh, you had control of the plane because it was landed. Yeah. Uh, you could you could have just put sleeping some kind of gas in there and and make make them just uh, slowly go to sleep. When you refuel. When you refuel. Yeah. That's right. That's what I mean. And then all this. Yeah, we're we're we are because he was in that cabin. He was in yeah. the cabin. And the the co-pilot, the pilot co-pilot, and and uh, the the uh, flight attendant was in the cockpit. So just fill that, fill the cabin with uh, with some type of a sleeping agent, and he goes to sleep. Mm-hmm. You walk in, take him off, capture him, and and uh, let the stick the bob in a in a safe place and let it go off. Yeah. I mean. Well, that's what I that's what I was doing in Fort Fort Lewis. We were training on how to uh, uh, find bombs and and neutralize bombs. So, yeah. So the money they found some of the money, but they didn't find the parachutes, and they didn't find the bomb. It seems like if twenty thousand dollars in pieces of paper can survive, that a bomb would survive, right? Yeah. And why did the why? And there wasn't that many, was there? What? There wasn't that much of the money that, that they found. No, yeah, let's get to that. Um, should we just continue to read? Yeah. Search yeah. for the ransom money. <clears throat> A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions to law and to law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. In 1972, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Do you see what they did? Yeah. They counterfeited money, a federal crime, to swindle a newsman to give them real money to give them access to a guy that was a fake D.B. Cooper. It's like, what a scheme. That is, that's like something out of a movie, you know? I feel yeah, like that was dumb. the story of D.B. Cooper could be a movie, but the story of these guys swindling the news reporter into thinking that D.B. Cooper was going to give him an interview so that he gives them $30,000, I think that's hilarious. Okay, in early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the post-intelligencer made a similar offer with $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Indemnity Company, complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airlines 
$180,000 claim on the ransom money. So that goes to show you, the only reason they paid the ransom is because they had insurance. That's right. It took them four years to get it back, but they got, uh, you know, 90% of it back. Yeah, they did. So that's interesting, don't you think? Yeah. That's kind of fishy. <laughs> Again, <laughs> that, that's fishy. Like the Northwest Orient CEO immediately says, let's pay the ransom money. Right? There'll be no mm-hmm. negotiation. Give him everything he wants. There's no ink pack. There's no tracking mechanism in the bag. There's nothing. They just give them unmarked sequential bills. You know, it's fascinating to me. I don't know. Like, like the Northwest might have had something to do with it, right? That's what I mean. Inside job. Yeah. Um, later developments. Subsequent analyses indicated that the original landing zone estimate was inaccurate. Scott, who was flying the aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, later determined his flight path was farther east than initially assumed. Additional data from a variety of sources, in, particularly, in particular Continental Airlines pilot Tom Bohan, who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305, indicated that the wind direction factored into drop zone cap- calculations had been wrong, possibly as much by 80 degrees. This and other supplemental data suggested that the actual drop zone was south-southeast of the original estimate, the drainage area of the Washugal River. Himmelsbach wrote, I have to confess, if I were going to look for Cooper, I would head for the Washugal. The Washugal Valley and its surroundings have been searched repeatedly by private individuals and groups in subsequent years. To date, no discoveries directly traceable to the hijacking have been reported. Some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens could have obliterated any remaining physical clues. <laughs> wow. Um, so they suspended the investigation in 2016. Um, and then we'll talk about this, and then we'll talk about the kid that found the ransom money after we break and have a little discussion. Three major pieces of evidence were found. A black clip on tie, a mother of pearl tie clip, and eight filter-tipped rally cigarette butts. At some time after the hijacking, the cigarette butts were lost. So they can't run DNA on them now. They didn't have DNA back then. Because they lost the evidence. And one of the most extensive manhunts in the history of time, they lost eight pieces of physical evidence. Mm-hmm. In November 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of Lake Merwin, but within Flight 305's basic flight path. Okay, we'll talk about this real quick. The lost cigarette butts gets to me a little bit, you know? Yeah, yep, yep, you're right. Um... So they had, he left behind three pieces of evidence, a tie, a tie clip, and lost cigarette butts. But they were lost. It, it all seems a little strange, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And this is what I think the reason why it's so fun to talk about D.B. Cooper is because it was never solved and nobody knows. So... You can put your powers of analysis on the details of the case 
and come up with anything and you're not wrong, you're just guessing. You see what I'm saying? And that's fun. It's fun to guess. I think it was an inside job. I think the FBI knew. I think Northwest Airlines knew. Oh, they paid the insurance money. They had insurance. They, so they paid the ransom. Oh, the cigarette butts were lost. You can, you can do all of this conjecture and not look like an idiot because there's no resolution. And that's what's fun about looking at the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of details that, again, that, that don't really fit. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? How did you? Well, and also the other side of it, though, uh, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You know, who would write a story like this? Uh, but maybe it is true. Maybe mm-hmm. all this stuff did happen. And uh, it could have been inside jot or not. Or, or not. Yeah. You, know, you, never, you don't really know. So should we it's, take a look at the recovered ransom money? Yeah, that's really interesting that the money, some of the money was found. On February 10th, 1980, so that's nine years or eight years and a few months after the hijacking. Eight-year-old mm-hmm. Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, uh, 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the Sandy River Bank to build a campfire. The bills were disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. The discovery launched several new rounds of conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than it answered. Initial statements by investigators and scientific consultants were founded on the assumption that the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting tributaries. An Army Corps of Engineers hydrologist noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, uh, indicating that they had been deposited by river action as opposed to having been deliberately buried. That conclusion, if correct, supported the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin nor any tributary of the Lewis River, which feeds into the Columbia well downstream from Tina Bar. It also lent credence to supplemental speculation that placed the drop zone near the Washougal River, which merges with the Columbia River upstream from the discovery site. But the free-floating hypothesis presented its own difficulties. It did not explain the ten bills missing from one packet, nor was there a logical reason that the three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. Physical evidence was incompatible with geologic evidence. Himmelsbach observed that free-floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have long since deteriorated, an observation confirmed experimentally by the Cooper research team. Geological evidence suggested, however, that the bills had arrived at Tina Bar well after 1974, the year of a Corps of Engineer dredging operation on that stretch of the river. The geologist Leonard Palmer of Portland State University found two distinct layers of sand and sediment between the clay deposited on the riverbank by the dredge and the sand layer in which the bills were buried, indicating that the bills arrived long after the dredging had been completed. The Cooper research team later challenged Palmer's conclusion, citing evidence that the clay layer was a natural deposit. That finding, if true, favors an arrival time of less than one year after the event based on rubber band experiment, but does not help explain how the bundles got to Tina Bar, nor from where they came. 
Recent analysis of diatoms found on the bill suggests that the bundles found at Tina Bar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in 1971. Only diatoms that bloomed during springtime were found, placing the date range that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. Alternative theories were advanced. Some surmised the money had been found at a distant location by someone, possibly even a wild animal, and carried to a riverbank and reburied there. The sheriff of Cowlitz County proposed that Cooper accidentally dropped a few bundles on the air stair, which then blew off the aircraft and fell into the Columbia River. One local newspaper editor theorized that Cooper, knowing he could never spend the money, dumped it into the river or buried portions of it at Tina Bar himself. No hypothesis offered to date satisfactorily explains all of the existing evidence. In 1986, after protracted negotiation, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. The FBI retained 14 examples of evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. That's the boy. Yeah. So... How crappy would it be? You're eight years old and you find six grand and you have to wait (laughs) 30 years. You're 36 at this time and all you get for discovering those bills is $37,000. so yeah, I mean, I think that we've covered most of the evidence. Now the rest, read, the rest. Read that last paragraph. To date, uh, none of the nine thousand seven hundred and ten remaining bills has turned up anywhere. The serial numbers remain available online in public source. The Columbia River ransom money and the air air stair instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacker ever found outside the aircraft. So, yeah, they found some of it, but not there's a lot of things they didn't find. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, hypothesis, conjecture, all that stuff was planted uh, so that the investigation runs after those rabbits and down the rabbit hole, uh, because that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. The case was really they wanted the ransom money. I mean, they wanted the uh, insurance money. Maybe, yeah. So if they think about it, if they did want, if if, if they if it was an inside job, but they wanted the the insurance money, uh, then uh, they would uh, work with the authorities, uh, uh, reveal different parts of the plan from time to time to time, uh, to keep them off track as much as possible. I mean, it, and it's also possible that he was. Uh, he died in the jump, you know? It's yeah, funny that they have... You know, I think the, that's unlikely. The hydrology department says this is, you know, deposited by the currents, but they don't say, could a person survive a 10,000-foot jump in a snowstorm from a 727? There's nothing about that. I think the answer is yes. I'd like to believe that he's still alive somewhere, Mikey. He's in his <laughs> 80s. He's on a beach somewhere sipping mojitos. He got away to some Central American country without an extradition treaty, and he's been living off his $200,000 for the last 40 years. <laughs> Do you think that's possible? I say, yeah, it's possible. That's what I'd like to believe. I know that this is a 
So there's, you know, theories and stuff, and we can look at other people's theories, but we've covered it. We've covered the mystery itself, you know. Everything else is just conjecture. So we've done our little bit of conjecture. You think immediately inside job smells like a rat to you. But there's another reason I chose to talk about this today. Because we have Disney+, and Disney+, owns Marvel. And they have a new show coming out called Loki. Loki is the god of mischief. But he's also a character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So apparently, and let me pull this up, on the show, which has not aired yet, they're going to say that Loki uh, was D.B. Cooper in one of the episodes. Forever attaching the legend of D.B. Cooper to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think sort of destroys the mystique of D.B. Cooper because now there's going to be more people that know D.B. Cooper as the guy from that show Loki than from the original uh, event that occurred, which also is extremely interesting. That's why I chose to talk about it today. Before that Loki episode airs and people say, oh, D.B. Cooper, yeah, he's the guy from Loki. He's like, no, <laughs> he's the guy that we discussed today. That's why I wanted to discuss him. Yeah. And it's one of those, well, thi- it's one of those things it's- where it's like, you can make Loki D.B. Cooper because it's not like D.B. Co- Cooper's family is going to sue you. Nobody knows who he is. So he's fair game, you know. That's, 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 that's. That's part of the West, Western U.S., the part of the old Wild West, is that uh, uh, you have the real person, and then you have the legend. Mm -hmm. And parts of the legend is true, and much of it is not. And that's that's just how things come up in the Wild West. Mm -hmm. And and it's how people people think and how people want to think about a legend. Yeah. And it's... It just grows. And it's how a mystery that's unsolved can captivate the imagination of people. It's captivated our imagination almost 50 years later. <laughs> it's been 49 years, and we discussed it today, and there are so, it raises more questions than it answers. That's sort of the nature of a mystery that's unsolved. And there will be no satisfying conclusion. You could say, I think he survived, and he's on a beach somewhere in Mexico. You could say, I think he died in the jump. You could say, I think that Northwest Airlines was involved in it. Say, I think there was an inside man in the FBI. And you're not going to be able to prove any of those things, but they're fun to think about, right? Yep. Well, I don't think we've solved any of the world's problems. But we have done an in-depth dive into the story of D.B. Cooper. Uh, do you have any final thoughts about this? Uh, about about the story? Yeah. And about life in general. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, whether he did or not, uh, the story brings up some interesting things that, uh, yeah, uh, that I, well, a couple of things. One, I think that there's a lot of crimes that go un, unsolved. And... Uh, if you're smart, you can figure out how to do things and not get caught. And uh, especially if you know uh, how people look for evidence. And so you can plant evidence or not uh, not allow that evidence to be seen. So, there, I mean, if you're smart enough, you can do that. Uh, I think uh, smart people, I think I mentioned this before, smart people uh, 
Uh, sometimes you get caught. Uh, sometimes you make mistakes, and sometimes you're just unlucky. Things happen. Uh, but I think there's a lot of a lot of things go uh, unsolved. Also, I think a lot of people in prison are there that didn't commit the crimes. They just flat out didn't do it. Someone else did it and framed them. Mm-hmm. That happens too. So these kinds of things they do happen. Our our system is not perfect. Uh, but when you have these kind of stories like DB Cooper, uh, there's a mystique around them and a legend around them that 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 just grows. And that serves to allow whoever did this or whatever groups of people were involved in this uh, to keep uh, the attention away from the facts. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we've seen that uh, in our just local history uh, the last four years, that when anything happens, you can bring up something else and divert the public's opinion. Mm hmm says, oh, he made a mistake. Yes, well, let's look at this over here. You know, and so that type of argument works. And we've seen that work in politics. And it's going to work with this, these kinds of things, too. And so if you want to commit a crime, spend, and you want, well, I shouldn't say that, but uh, people think <laughs> if you want to commit a crime like this and make a lot of money and not get caught, then what you do is you create a parallel a parallel story where everyone will follow and no one will follow your story. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, very effective. Well, I chose this today because they're going to ruin the legend of D.B. Cooper with Loki. <laughs> and because I always thought D.B. Cooper was kind of cool. He was a gentleman. He was kind. He was not out of control. He released all the passengers when they landed in Seattle. And then nobody got hurt. You know, the only person that got hurt was the FBI's pride. And as a result of that, they said, oh, he died in the jump. And it's because they didn't recover any evidence. And it's like, well, it's interesting that your explanation is the one that makes your organization look the least incompetent. Um, And I think that happens a lot. Now, I also do think there's some credence to the fact that it's possible that he died in the jump. You know, it's possible that there's there's a bleached skeleton somewhere in the forests of Washington that is in an area that no one's walked in the last 50 years. There's a lot of land in this country. But, oh, yeah. But I think that in my heart, I would like to believe that D.B. Cooper, his money was never found because it's sitting in some Panamanian bank away from the eyes of someone who would look at the serial numbers. And that may be, that may be why we've never seen it, you know? And that he lived out his days. He may even still be alive somewhere but not in america and if he got away with it hey he didn't hurt anyone so good for him or (laughs) or that money that he took uh he just buried it somewhere or put it in the ocean somewhere or destroyed it or whatever or threw it away and he got a cut of the hundred and eighty thousand insurance money that uh that was that was awarded yeah he got his cut I think you can make a very interesting movie about the story of D.B. Cooper. And all you would have to do is just fudge the details of stuff that nobody knows and make it as compelling as you wanted to. And that's what I think people love about the story. You can sort of make up a story in your head that is satisfying on some level, regardless of who you are. Well, one thing that's true is that it did happen. Yes. 
what happened did happen. And what you what you conjecture is how did it happen? What happened afterward? Did he get away with it? And then that stuff you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the stuff around the story you can make up, but then you have the core that it did happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's that's the mystique, and that's the uh, the uh, that's the attractiveness of it. Yes, and I think that's a good place to leave it. So I'll cue up the final music. Okay. And ask you if there's anything you'd like to leave the listeners out there with. Yeah, we want to say that uh, it is so important to keep on talking. Uh, But listen more than you talk and try to understand what other people are saying. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.